Hello and welcome to the podcast, How Did You End Up Here? I'm Jamie Hare and I'm talking to people in interesting jobs and finding out what path they took to get there. This week is part two of my chat with academic and filmmaker, Professor Nick Higgins. Nick takes us from success at the box office to his never-ending desire to learn and move into new areas of filmmaking. Nick, the other three films that was very interesting um, was firstly, We Are Northern Lights, um, The Circuit and Colours of the Alphabet. Can you talk to me a wee wee bit about them? Yes. So, We Are Northern Lights was um, an enormously ambitious project, really, uh, which we made in... I say we, I often sort of talk in the royal we, but it, but it's it's not. It's meant to really reflect that whilst I'm the originator of all these projects, filmmaking is a collaborative process and I always work with other people. So, so you know, whether it's editors, whether it's cinematographers, I mean, We Are Northern Lights happens to be the general public as well. So the, there's always a we really in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. As much as I, I'm a fan of what I call author documentary, it's also sometimes a bit of a misnomer, and the, the more I've got to understand producers, the more I realise how important they are. So, so, so when I say we, that's what I mean. Um, and so uh, the Northern Lights project, it, the, the film called We Are Northern Lights, but actually started as Northern Lights, came about because I wanted to make um, a portrait of Scottish identity. And I wanted to make it because it was it was part of the political climate at that point as we were heading towards the referendum. And this is pre the campaign starting. Um, but it felt like a very optimistic moment. But at the same time, it also felt a moment where some of the press, particularly the sort of um, English-based press, were rolling out once again stereotypes about what it means to be Scottish, the usual sort of kilted kind of, you know, sort of flag-waving kind of nonsense and I thought I think it's a good time to kind of ask this question you know what does it mean to be Scottish um, however I also felt even the word Scotland or Scottish at that point was kind of politically loaded and so um, uh, I thought how yeah again on the back of the new Ten Commandments with 10 directors I didn't feel that was the form I, you know initially I thought should I get a whole bunch of other filmmakers and we'll all make different portraits of Scotland and you know, that seemed to be repeating myself and I wasn't completely happy with um, the new Ten Commandments for, for different reasons. And then uh, the technology had changed. You know, by that point, suddenly people had mobile phones where the cameras on the mobile phones were, were really good quality. They were sort of HD quality. And so people were carrying about, as it were, the means of production in their pockets. And so, and this was before life in a day, before... Um, uh, so it was something within the sort of zeitgeist at the time, and I, and I first came up with the idea that we could maybe do a mass, a mass participation project, so a a, um, a a national portrait in which everyone could be involved. And fortunately for me, and this is where my producer cap comes on, a fund appeared, looking for mass participation projects, as part of the cultural Olympiad. So the Olympics were happening but there was this money that was available for the Cultural Olympiad. But in Scotland, because we like to do things differently, it wasn't called the Cultural Olympiad. It was called the Year of Creative Scotland. But nevertheless, they had the same criteria, mass participation. So I put in an application to do this quite, you know, crazy sort of project, and they said yes. And, of course, sometimes you get what you ask for. That, and, 
And so all of a sudden we had to figure out how to do a mass participation project. And so I created a whole different team. So it's not location recordist, it's not cinematographer. It was very much the whole infrastructure for that project was online. It was using the web. Um, I worked with this brilliant company, ISO Design, who I who I still work now are you know sort of long term collaborators, and um, I worked with social media in a way that I'd never worked before, and we we basically ran what was effectively a campaign rather than a production to engage the Scottish population in in providing not so much films as footage about their lives and what they felt was important. And um, and that was an, an amazing thing to do, really. We, we delivered uh, 56 workshops across the whole of the country. I collaborated with all sorts of media access centres, again, links to my own sort of start kind of in filmmaking. And um, we sent out little uh, flip cameras to people. We particularly targeted people with mental and physical disabilities. We particularly tar- targeted the black and ethnic minority it's in Scotland. And we teamed up with institutions that worked with those people. And so we we ran this massive campaign. I'd set up an office in Film City. We had a team of about six to eight people in there. And for about six months, you know, three months of an active, a live submission period and probably three months prior to that of preparation, we really, really worked it. And from starting from nothing and not as a national broadcaster and everything just coming out sort of via press and social media, we managed to get over 70,000 people to engage with the project of which fifteen over 1,500 people submitted footage, and we get nearly 400 hours of material, which we then set about making a feature documentary from um, for the following six months um, with two assistant editors. So it was a, that was a phenomenal job, um, but an incredible experiment as well. And we premiered that one at the Glasgow Film Festival. It was brilliant because then I because of its very public and popular nature, um, even though we had set up a a small cinema release around the sort of arts and independent cinemas, I really wanted to get it to the mainstream audience. And so I badgered (laughs) Cineworld for months, actually. Um, And they have a pretty extensive firewall to prevent (laughs) independent filmmakers from annoying them, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the system is pretty closed system. But I somehow got through and um, and they, they agreed to, to put it on and we had a release in Cineworld and we're first, we still are really the, the first Scottish documentary to get a proper release in Cineworld. We went mm. out in five cities, we had an opening weekend and what was brilliant was we went up against um, uh, Iron Man 2 and Star Trek 2. Right. And so it was a brilliant kind of David and Goliath story. They had budgets of over a hundred million, and we had a budget of about three hundred grand, and we were on the cinema. Yeah. And but the the, the fantastic thing is, once Cineworld decided to back you, they played our trailer before yeah. Iron Man Two and Star Trek. Yeah. You know, and so everyone becomes aware of your film, and the press picked it up. We were on the six o'clock news, both STV and the BBC. We were on the radio that day of the the Friday, the opening weekend. And we got amazing press and we got good reviews. We got our, our four, sometimes five star reviews, always a minimum four star reviews. So we did well and we did a good opening weekend. And so they, uh, you know, you just never know. And so yeah. they kept us on and we were on for three weeks right. in Cineworld. And they're, they are not romantic, you know. No. If you do not get the bums in the seats, yeah. you are not staying on their screens. Yeah, yeah. And they lose, I don't know if you know how it works, but it, but it pretty much 
if of 18 films they maybe put on one at the start of the week, only half of them will probably carry through to the next week and the rest they'll just get rid of because yeah. they haven't performed. Mm -hmm. And so we were outperforming every week nine effectively Hollywood-type films, yeah, yeah. proper budgets, you know. Um, I'm not saying they're all brilliant films. Some of them are quite good. We did better than Pedro Maldivar, you know, and, and that is a, considered mm -hmm. to be a good film. So we did really well for, for the cinema. And what was really gratifying about that was the people that had contributed to that film were able to say to their mates, you know, that film, you know, that, that yeah. footage that I shot from my phone is on in Cineworld. Cineworld yeah. and, and, you know, so we would a kind of built-in audience. We didn't conceive of it that way, but yeah. we did, really. Yeah. And also, I think I call it Scotland's sort of national home movie. And it, it was a bit like that. Mm. And I just think people took a lot of pleasure from, from seeing that film. There was a lot of recognition i mean it's very rare and i can't really think of another example even where you'd have that many different accents yeah. within the one film mm -hmm. that covers that much geography within the country and so there was always quite a lot of chatter within the cinema which mm -hmm. i think i said before you know for other films would be possibly offensive for a filmmaker yeah. but i understand it with with not yeah. like people are always saying oh do you recognize that or do you know that guy or he's a bit like this or we've been there mm -hmm. And there was a very strong sort of ownership by the by I'd say the public for for the film, and um, so it did really well. And then at the back of that, we got a BAFTA nomination as well. So that was, mm. you know, an unusual speculative sort of I would say cinematic experiment mm. that had a really kind of brilliant life. And um, and I also think importantly from its early sort of ambitions, did help the national conversation in terms of answering what it means to be Scottish. And my answer to that now is we'd 121 co-directors in that film and we gave 121 different answers of what that what that means. And that and that to my mind is what it should be. You know, yeah. Scottish identity is is multiple, plural and complex. Mm -hmm. Um and you know, if if other parts of the press can't handle that, that's sort of their problem. But I felt that that's what the film did. It gave a strong riposte to that question. And part of your approach to, to making that film by just putting it in the hands of the general public, you, you thought that was an, that people can be more themselves, can relax more, can can truly be, you know, what it is that you're representing, as opposed to sending in ten different crews to different places to sit in front of people and ask them what they're doing, or it's just you're just getting them in their natural environment, doing what they do, which is filming people, which people do every single day, film each other on their phones. Yeah, I mean that's that was the um, ambition and the hope. I mean, you, I think all documentary filmmakers are hoping to capture people being natural and themselves and not being self-conscious. And you know, the the classic mode of doing that is to achieve access over a long period of time and build trust, and therefore capture something that's that's possibly quite intimate and then bring that to the screen. Mm -hmm. But yes, the, the idea of people filming it themselves is in theory we short circuit that whole process and they film them friends mm -hmm. or their own family or even themselves. And then in theory, mm -hmm. they shouldn't be so self-conscious. The flip side of that is some people were quite performative mm -hmm. and they sort of performed in some ways for the camera. But that we so we had a mix of, I think, I would say people absolutely being themselves and people in some ways... Um, perform but the performing was okay because it's like it's a bit like jewish people making jokes about themselves mm -hmm. jewish people are allowed to do that other people aren't yeah, yeah we as scots are allowed to 
kind of poke fun yeah, at yeah. our own identity, but nobody else. Yeah, is. yeah, that's the rules. And, yeah, and so there were so there were elements within that, and there was a kind of sort of, and and we pitched it like that. We we weren't trying to be we were trying to be slightly irreverent. We were saying, you know, if 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 you think the best thing about being Scottish is that we're funny and we can take a joke, then go ahead yeah, and yeah. make a film about that. So mm-hmm. we welcomed that kind of material. So we really tried to sort of make a platform for, for people to be different ways. I mean, some people, you know, chose to trust us with very intimate stories about their lives, which, you know, in some ways are classic sort of documentary. Yeah. And, and that is amazing because, there, you know, yeah. there was no relationship. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, they just trusted the project in a sense. Um and other people sort of took it as a moment to sort of um, sometimes make a joke of um, like people in the central belt sometimes, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, the other way around. But they took it as an opportunity to to kind of poke the Scottish identity mm. in the ribs a wee bit more. Sure. But that all worked for us. I mean, in terms of the the edit, which was a you know a fairly terrifying experience, we never knew because you know we did not structure. There was not mm. a structure for that film. Yeah. Um, or at least the structure that I held in my head for a wee while very early on when we made a cut with Colin Money, it was really obvious that that wasn't going to work and it wasn't at all clear that we were going to be able to pull a film out of that um, but in the end we we sort of we had to take a far more I think kind of poetic sort of approach to it um, and it's you know it's a, it's a real sort of impressionistic film but it's absolutely a journey you know mm-hmm. um, through Scotland during that sort of period and I think, and it will be interesting to sort of see how it stands up in in time. You know, there was a, it was pre the, the referendum campaign starting. So the whole yes, no sort of binary kind of opposition wasn't there. And there was a general sort of far more a sense of optimism about what autonomy might be. We, we sought out, you know, we went to some length to find people who we felt, because the Queen's birthday or the Jubilee happened during that time, to find um, sort of royalist or unionist sort of supporters. But that wasn't really how people were talking about Scotland yeah. at, that, at that moment. So it was a really great snapshot, which I don't think we would have got a year later, or even a year after that. Mm-hmm. And you obviously had the whole uh, other positive effect of holding workshops and, you know, training people to learn maybe skills that they had. And I don't suppose it's unquantifiable what the kind of knock-on effect of that might be. Someone who you might switched on and who... Maybe they're, they're able to work, maybe they didn't even make the final cut, but they may have just opened their eyes a little bit and, and, and perhaps they've, you know, they've taken their life in a different direction because of there that. There are. I mean, there are those stories. I mean, I do know some of those stories. I'm not sure if I'll say their names because it might kind of embarrass them, but there was one guy who, you know, shot stuff outside his window from his flat in Springburn. Mm-hmm. And his, I mean, he told us at the time he came to... Um, he, he came to the premiere it wasn't until the premiere mm-hmm. and he and he said to me you know my dad never took me seriously as a filmmaker and here I am on the red carpet at the GFT the Glasgow mm-hmm. Film Festival and my dad's really proud of me yeah yeah and then that led him to and he asked for advice and, and then he applied for the various schemes he ended up making a short film for one of the schemes that then played the Glasgow Short Film Festival and he's now making another short and he he looks like he you know mm-hmm. this could be somebody who's going to have a career as a director and so he absolutely yeah. got a boost from that, mm-hmm. which I don't think he would have found his way into that world. He yeah. might have, yeah. but we definitely gave him access to that and, and importantly, um, support from his family. And then there were other kids who were down... Um, I say kids, just I'm getting old, but anyway, <laughs> y- young young people 
uh, down near Shore Coast here who were shooting things on their iPad that we put in. And one of them I taught um, two years ago here at UWS, mm-hmm. who's, who's one of our students, who again said he would never would have thought of even applying to do something like yeah. film and TV. Um, but the film, you know, made him think there were things that he could he could learn, and that was a, a, an option for him. Um, and there's a few other instances. The BBC Social now has probably about four people on it who were all in We Are Northern Lights, mm-hmm. you know, who then sought out other sort of ways. So I think it was never about giving people careers, but it but it did do that for for some people, or it certainly brought them into the realm of thinking there's there's a um, the media is a place for them to communicate things that they, they want to communicate. Now, that was obviously quite an innovative thing to do. Uh, something else that's quite innovative is the, the film The Circuit, which was filmed uh, using 360-degree camera rigs um, to make the virtual doc- virtual reality documentary at Air Racecourse. Yep. Where did your interest come in to begin with in, in that sort of technology and in that way of telling a story so that actually comes out of a slightly bigger project which is uws.io which is online as www.io which is interactive online <coughs> and that came out of um, We Are Northern Lights and, and the fact of using a web based infrastructure as effectively a production tool and I thought that we could set up something that would get students to maybe think about the web as a separate sort of form from TV or film and that they could do things with that. So we first did a project called 2.4 Kilometres, which we did at the Hunterston Nuclear Power Station, which was really for mobile phones or tablets. So it's to be swiped through. So you experience it on a phone or tablet rather than cinema or TV. And and that's that's on the site. And then we did a second project called the River Project, which is an audio project that tracks the river air that runs right beside their campus from its source to the sea, which again is meant to be listened with headphones, perhaps on your on your phone. Um, and so, uh, the circuit was the the third of these what we call digital editions, really, of UWS.io, and all of them were based on the premise that we to find something local. Um, to the air campus but find a way of exploring it that was sort of novel and I'd always wanted to do something at the race course since I first arrived here because we always drive by it and I've always mm-hmm. thought why has nobody ever made a film at the air race course because mm-hmm. it's like especially if you're here not that, <laughs> that often but if you see it really early in the morning there's certain times of day where it seems really yeah. incredible yeah. and um and so I'd been waiting again, you know, for, for what I thought might be the right project. And this this is a bit like, you know, we are Northern Lights. Technology moves. And so you might have ideas, but as, as I said before, you don't know how to do them. And then when the 360 cameras came up, I mm-hmm. thought, oh, that kind of fits. It yeah, kind of yeah. fits with the fact that the race course is, is a circuit, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe that's maybe this is the right project to try out that technology. Mm-hmm. and um, so as you know with students involved in that project students were involved in all those projects um, and uh, and I so were collaborators in that project as well you know really really big part of the production um, and uh, but it was also an experiment because 360 you know filmmaking virtual reality filmmaking is quite a hard thing to understand without having done it mm-hmm. uh, especially for filmmakers you literally don't really know where to point the camera yeah. you don't quite know how to structure it and 
as with a lot of things, I, I, I genuinely believe the only way to sort of learn rather than reading lots is to make something. And the best way is to do it rather than a test as a project. So we'd sort of framed the project. We'd won access as, as it was to the air film, air, air race course, uh, really helpful guys there. Um, and then um, we had a structure for the film, which was more or less following the, the jockey. Well, it was jockey from the weigh-in room to the winner's enclosure. So we knew there could be setups the whole way around. So, you know, I felt that was quite a contained way of, of doing the experiments. Um, and I think we learned an awful lot from doing that. And that led me into um, running a symposium at the Glasgow Short Film Festival on immersive filmmaking and um, helping curate their um, virtual reality movie house. So I got to see a lot of VR films during that period um, and invited those filmmakers, everyone we had in the movie house at that time with Matt Lloyd at the festival we brought to the symposium or had a part in the symposium. Um, so again, it was a a great way for me to educate myself about virtual reality and who's doing what and how it might be done. Um, and we continue to do more. I'm doing something what's called a knowledge um, training partnership, um, a KTP with the ISO studio, who are a digital design studio, um, and we'll be doing more on, on virtual reality um, over the next two years. I've got a PhD student, Jesus Russian, um, who's doing a PhD on the use of um, virtual reality with the disabled community. And I, I'm part of what's a university-wide project um, called UWS Immersive, which is all about how we can use this technology within our teaching, our research, and how we work with society. And already we now have 220 nurses who have VR experiences as part of their module for learning how to better understand what it feels like to be autistic, for instance. That's the application they're using and we're looking at introducing that in every school over the next year mm -hmm. and we're building a, a VR lab in Paisley um, over the next year. So so that has definitely mushroomed in some sense, but I suppose I, I don't really consider myself a technologically savvy or even that interested sort of person, but I am interested in what the technology makes possible, mm -hmm. what kind of new forms of storytelling and... Um, and I, and I currently am carrying a number of ideas for future VR productions, but I, I still don't know quite how to do them because um, that one we did was effectively a documentary. It was mm -hmm. effectively a 360 documentary. And the next one I'd like to do is probably going to be in much more of a mixed sort of form, um, partly because I, I think VR forces you to choreograph a wee bit to try and control it. It's quite, it's quite a risky thing in some ways to do in an environment where you can't direct anyone and you're not quite sure who you're pointing the camera at. Mm -hmm. So that, that too, so the technology forces you to sort of reformat your ideas. But I do, I don't quite know when that, that again has to, the funding opportunity has to be there. And I thought there was going to be one with Paisley 2021. That, did, that fell through, but I still, you know, there'll be, not, I'll find another home to fund another project of that nature. So that's sort of percolating away. Um, is that sort of how you have to work you have you've got a number of ideas and you're just waiting for the sort of circumstances to fall into place and obviously you can affect circumstances in a, in a certain way but you you just sort of need some stars to align and, yeah, uh, and definitely definitely mm -hmm. I mean I sort of um, as I say I, I, I think I have a few 
projects or ideas that always seem to knock around in my head and, and my producer side of it goes scanning for opportunities and if I think I can make them fit somewhere and as I say I'm completely open to whether that's television you know um, Creative Scotland Arts Council type funding or you know something um, I've, had, I've taken money from the NHS for instance in the past and European funders or academic funds you know um, I don't mind where the where the funds come from to make this sort of project. Uh, so I'm always sort of scanning for something that's going to be a, a, a good fit. Um, but I have to be careful as well. I mean, I have, a, you know, I, I teach and I, I do other things. And there also has to be a, a window, you know, mm-hmm. um, where I think it's going to be possible to go into production. But VR is quite complicated. It does involve, all film involves collaboration. But VR, I think, involves even more collaboration, especially in the post-production mm-hmm. aspect, than other projects. And so part of it, too, is, is not just the funding opportunity, but slowly educating myself on who the best collaborators are as well. Um, ISO are great collaborators, but it's, it's not just them. You know, there's maybe sound people who want to work in, in that space, which is ambisonics mm-hmm. or um, uh, bioral, you know, and... and um, there's people that do that, but are they the people with a similar kind of mentality? You know, can can you create basically a unit um, that's that's going to give you the best production? So I'm still feeling my way around that, but I do, yeah, I think something will happen. And if I can just touch on your your, your latest production, Colors of the Alphabet. That's the latest one you've released. Am I right to say that? It is the latest one we've released, but it, it a bit like. Um, when we spoke earlier about A Massacre Foretold, and mm-hmm. even though that took five years, I made two other films during the period of which that's been made. Um, the uh, Colours of the Alphabet had its premiere in 2015? No, 2016 at the Glasgow Film Festival. So um, so effectively it had its first premiere and, and the circuit was made after that. But... Um, these films have a long life mm-hmm. in terms of, or or rather, uh, I'm the producer in that film rather than director. The director is a, a, a guy called Alistair Cole, who's now at the University of Newcastle, and he did one of the practice-based PhDs that I created at the University of Edinburgh. So that's a project that was born out of a PhD um, that he shot out in Zambia, and I produced, you know, we worked remotely. He would send things down the wires, and we would Skype, and I'd watch footage, and, and that's how it operated, and then I raised some money for Colin Money, the, the editor of um, We Are Northern Lights, to, to edit it. And, you know, so I brought some of my collaborators onto the project then. And the key thing was about making sure these films have, have a life. Um, and because I've self-distributed three films now, so we put out um, We Are Northern Lights, we, we put out um, yeah, Massacre Foretold and The New Ten Commandments, um, and, and there really aren't, you know, distributors mm-hmm. for feature documentaries in Scotland. But there are what we call producers of marketing and distribution. So we worked with a guy called Jed Fitzsimmons on Colours of the Alphabet. And we created a distribution strategy. And part of that strategy was to get it out in Africa. And then I had to raise some funds. So these things take a while. But anyway, eventually we got some funds. And only recently did we... Um, release it on the Afrodox platform to the whole of Africa um, in 30 different languages. So the film is all about what it's like to be educated in a language that's not your own and the experience of three kids and the consequences really of for these three children 
of of not being educated in their their mother tongue, and that's a massive it's a massive issue internationally. Um, UNESCO have a, a not very well titled um, day of international mother language <laughs> education, um, which nevertheless we released that on UNESCO's day, and UNESCO gave us some support because forty percent of the world's population, believe it or not, are not educated in their mother tongue. And there's quite a lot of research that shows that has a ne very negative consequence, both about how people feel about their language and their culture, but also their educational prospects going forward. So our film really asks the question, which is a very big question for Africa, you know, does the future have to be in English? And that's where you can see the, the academic, again, kind of crossover where another filmmaker wouldn't really be bothered about that, I don't mm -hmm. think, and also perhaps wouldn't be bothered in making sure um, the project is disseminated as widely or, or, or really reaches the audiences where that's a live question. So we, we went out for a month with AfriDocs, but we, um, we did well in, that, in our numbers, and so we've extended that, and it's still on their platform for another month or so. Um, but that's a great life for, for a film, you know, for a, a documentary, another Scottish documentary, premiere at the Glasgow Film Festival, a theatrical release in 14 cinemas with funding for Creative Scotland, a festival life, we're on, I don't know how many festivals now, 20-odd, and then going out across the whole of Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a good story as well. I'm pretty happy. But it's a lot of a lot of work. It's a different type of work. But, mm -hmm. you know, this is this is the thing. Films require you to raise funds for them. They require you to make them. And then you, they require you to make sure they, they get a life. Keep and, supporting and an them audience. after them. And so these feature docs are, you know, they're yeah. a long journey. Because I think it's all, now it's released, you can sort of go, whew, take a step back, but actually know you've got to keep on pushing it and finding finding yeah. space for it yeah and yeah you've got to make sure i mean if no one else is going to pick it up and as i say there are so so few you know options in terms of people distributing mm -hmm. documentaries in the uk let alone scotland um that if you can't secure that and even if you can secure that those distributors don't go to the same lengths as you do so mm -hmm. for us it was really really important to have to meet the audience and have conversations and you know we even though it's about africa we um, when we had our cinema release here, you know, we, we had organisations about Scots, people going to school and, you know, the language they speak in their house, suddenly going to school and discovering that it's like received pronunciation mm -hmm. and thinking, you know, and we and that's what the film captures, that, that it's primary one, effectively, six-year-olds yeah. who think, hold on a second, you know, nobody in my house talks like this. Yeah. How come they're all talking this sort of like yeah. Queen's English? What yeah, the heck yeah. is that about? Yeah. And that's a, that's a Scottish story, and of course for the for the Gales and, and the Gaelic community here, we went up the west coast. That's you know they had that experience where they were told they're not allowed to speak Gaelic, you know, yeah. and they, they would actually be, you know, on on occasion beaten, you yeah, know, yeah. if if they did as well, you know, it it was censored, and then but then we also have quite a large migrant community now, and not just that second generation. So our our premier in Glasgow brought forward people from the Chinese community. Um, so as those Punjabi speakers, Polish speakers, who were very moved by the film again, mm -hmm. very moved because it's a, a hard thing to communicate what it that it's effectively a frustration of not being able to speak. Mm -hmm. And that's what we captured in that film over the period of effectively a year. These kids who want to learn, who are sort of struggling, but can't, they can't speak, you mm -hmm. know? And um and the big question is why would you put them through that? Um the answer is much easier in some ways, you know, to answer in, in Scotland because we are predominantly English speaking. 
Um, but in large parts of Africa, especially in Zambia, where it's filmed, I mean, it's only like two percent who actually, you know, speak English in the end. So mm -hmm. then it becomes a question of if if that's the case, yeah. then why is that the vehicle for for development? Um, and how does education become um, something that might deliver social mobility if it's been delivered in a, in a foreign language? language? And that's the debate that's happening over there now because of the film. We spoke just before we switched the microphones on. We spoke about producing, directing, how you try to avoid doing the same thing at the same time or doing them both at the same time. But did you have a view on that? Is it sometimes unavoidable if you're committed to the subject matter? And you know, like when you go to Mexico, you're the one that has to make it. And it, do you have a thought? Do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, for for me, I think it grew out of. Um, I don't, I don't, so I have a lot of sympathy. I'm in an unusual position in that I'm in academia and make films. Mm -hmm. And I was in academia first and then started making films rather than working in industry and then coming into academia. And that, and that is quite unusual. And so um, I have a lot of sympathy for um, especially any producer, you know, who's got to make a living and um, is running a production company that, you know, gives, puts food on their table. And it's very difficult for those producers to pursue a project that isn't immediately going to get funded. Mm -hmm. I say immediately, but there's a question about how long you can go looking for funding for a project and and also where they can go looking for funding for a project. And so um, I don't think any of my projects were that easy a fit. So, for instance, with A Massacre Foretold, a film being made by a Scottish guy in Mexico, I remember going to the BBC and saying, does this interest you? And they said... This is BBC Scotland, and they said, "Well, no, because our audience, you know, doesn't watch this kind of stuff." So, mm -hmm. and if you look at it, there's no really international stories being shown on BBC Scotland. There's, there's occasionally one or two now, but it's very rare. Mm -hmm. And if they're there and they say this explicitly, they'd like a Scottish character in it, yeah, or they'd like a voiceover, you know, that introduces, you know, the audience to mm -hmm. to this sort of topic. And they were both approaches that I, I didn't want to be in the film. I didn't yeah. want my voice on it. So that effectively closed down the option of working with a local broadcaster. And then for a producer, apart from the ones who make featured documentaries um, and, and get money from Europe and other broadcasters, then that limits, you know, there's, there's probably only five or six producers in Scotland mm -hmm. who are not working with television in that way. And then if they don't want to take on that project... Or, or they don't, they can't afford to be quite honest to give the time. Mm -hmm. Then, then you know, I'm getting my bread and butter from from teaching at that point in academia. Then I can afford to pursue it. So in some mm -hmm. ways, it's sort of the circumstance, and I suppose my, you know part of that has to come down to my what would you call it? Sort of, um, I mean, you could the nice way is probably to say my tenacity, but also just my unwillingness to let go of certain yeah, yeah. things until I found a, uh -huh. a way of doing it. And um, and that's I don't propose that as a career to anyone else. That that's quite I think idiosyncratic to me. But I do suggest to the students on the whole that it's much better. And I, and I've learned this I think the hard way. I think if I'd had a producer for a massacre foretold, I now in retrospect think the edit might have been better. Yeah, because things. You know, there would be somebody else to feed back. Obviously, it's got to be the right producer. It's mm -hmm. got to be somebody whose opinions you value. Ideally, somebody with experience who's good at telling stories and seen a lot of stories. And I think that relationship, you know, they're really creative, collaborative relationships. And I try and be that producer. So I tried to be that producer for Alistair with Cause of the Alphabet. And I try and encourage all my students 
to have that relationship with their producer or producers to have that relationship with the directors. And um, and then hopefully they will go out into the economy and they will work in that sort of way. So I, I don't really advocate it, but it but it is a lot to do with the economics really of of um of our country that, that documentary filmmakers are quite often director producers. And just kind of finish off, do you are you someone that's makes five ten year plans? Do you obviously you've got a number of ideas, do you sort of go, Well, if I can do this by you know, 2020 and this one back, you know, do you think that way or do you just take your ideas and, and just keep looking out for, for what's, what might, what opportunities might come up? Uh, I mean, I do a bit, a bit like um, probably a lot of people, you know, I do have moments where I reflect and think, you know, have I moved? Have I progressed? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I do think ahead a, a wee bit in that way. I don't know about five or 10 year plans. Um, but, you know, there were certain things. I mean, I've been here in September. It'll be coming up to five years being at UWS. I wanted to get a master's in filmmaking on the books here at UWS. <laughs> and I had probably said to myself I wanted that to happen in about three years. I didn't say that publicly, mm-hmm. but I had that in my sort of mind. And I wanted that because I think the students here are great, but I think a lot of them coming out with um, just an honours degree often found themselves going into production assistant, runner sorts of roles, and, and they're abs- absolutely fine. It's a great way to get into the industry. But I felt some of the more talented ones sometimes didn't then get a shake at being directors or producers. Or if they do, it takes them such a long time. And I thought if I could, some of them had an opportunity to go into a master's sort of programme and one more year effectively yeah. of sort of nurturing that talent, then they would come out and they would get involved with some of the schemes like the Scottish Film Talent Network or Bridging the Gap. And industry i suppose we start to see us in a slightly different kind of way um that so so that is happening um i'd like to see more of that um but uh but you know you're not in complete control of institutions <laughs> institutions change their plans i'm not the boss here you know there's a principle and you know sometimes it doesn't really matter what my five year plan is the institution can decide to go somewhere else but then there's individual things for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do have this thing about learning. So, I mean, I think you could probably see that in my, if we call it a career, you know, going from being a producer-director to producing a portmanteau as a as a form of, you know, sort of a, a chapter film to then doing a mass participation documentary to then doing online projects to then doing a virtual reality film, you know. I, I I do like to go into new territory, yeah. And I'm not scared of that, and that and that sort of um, that keeps me engaged. And so I am. Um, whilst I don't necessarily plan ahead, you know, I'm already thinking. I don't quite know how mixed reality works. I don't know where augmented reality really fits in with this. And but I can well imagine that you know. But I but I'm sort of having a look at these things, and I've created collaborators in terms of. Um, the KTP associate that I mentioned with ISO and even the PhD, you know, I take on PhD students who are maybe doing things I mentioned and I learn from them. And as long as I feel as though I'm sort of learning in that kind of way and and that plays out in some of my projects, then I think I'm okay. It's just if I start to sort of feel that I'm repeating myself or doing the same thing for too long, then I think like everyone else, I probably did a kick up the arse. Nick Higgins, thank you very much for telling us how you ended up here. Thank you, Jamie, for taking the time to talk to me.
that's all for this week. Thanks very much to Professor Nick Higgins for joining me. You can find out more about Nick's work by following him on Twitter. He's at Higgins underscore Nick or by liking the UWS Creative Media Academy page on Facebook. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jamie Hare. Thanks again for listening and I'll be back soon with the next episode of How Did You End Up Here?